Hello fellow adventurers and welcome to the Nerd Lab, where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. My name is Marvin and I'm an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop a strategy card game. For this podcast, my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey. Together, we will explore the secrets of different game mechanics and reach the next level as a game designer. Today, we have a great guest on the show, and I'm really, really excited to learn more about his game, because he is the designer of a strategy card game as well, um, and the game just got successfully funded with more than 100k on Kickstarter last month. Um, it's a highly strategic game about card placement, positioning, and yeah, maximizing the potential of card combos. And um, yeah, at first glance, it reminded me a little bit of um, yeah, Magic mixed with Summoner Wars and a little bit of Warhammer. And all of those games are really games that I love. So, um, And then the game also has incredible art and um, incredible graphic design. Um, yeah, it, it really got me hooked uh, because it looks so appealing and um, it, it sounds like a very, very interesting game. So that's why I'm really excited to talk about uh, the game today with its designer, uh, Robert Palmer, um, the designer of Arakan Wars. So please welcome to the show, Robert. Well, thank you very much, Marvin, for having me on. It's quite an honor to be here uh, tonight with you. Um, so yeah, so the, the, the game is called um, Arakan Wars. Um, I am the designer. I created the game with uh, one of my best friends, uh, Michael Bourg, who uh, was part of the team with us. Um, so the, um, the whole story of Arakan Wars started a long time ago. Back in 2011, um, I met with um, a man called Lies uh, Amadou, who uh, created and wrote the story of Arakan. And so back in the day, we kind of fantasized of having kind of like a collectible card game or something that would take all the characters and the lands and the castles from the story of Arakan that was written into a game that's really fun to play. And uh, so uh, this is when uh, the whole Arakan project started. The game itself came about around 2018. Um, so at first I started working on the Arakan project as an art director. And so uh, this is where my background lies. In uh, It's in art, it's in graphic design and things like that. And uh, I had been thinking about uh, creating a card game that I would just really love to play, you know, back in 2010 and just came about in 2018, kind of really magically all the, the mechanics just, just kind of emerged from probably years of thinking about it and, uh, subconsciously. And so uh, that's that's really the genesis of um, of Arakan Wars. So you mentioned that it is uh, some kind of it's based on a on a novel or or some kind of story. So was this published as a as a book or so? How did you how did you um, got to it? That's a very good question. So um, the story was written um, years ago around uh, because it's funny because the the project really started it was music. Uh, because Lies is a, a composer of orchestral music. And so he wrote a story that, that, that would really be complemented by his, uh, his music. And it, beca it became an audiobook. So um, at the moment, the story of Arakan is available as a, an audiobook, but only in the, in the French version. So it's, uh, it's being translated as we speak and recorded by English actors. Uh, it's really like a very high-end audiobook 
experience. It has sound design, 3D sound design, binaural. It has orchestral music that was composed expressly for the story. Uh, it has voice actors and it has uh, state-of-the-art um, uh, voice narration. So uh, the, the story has not been uh, made to print yet, but it is available in French and audio. Okay, so that sounds very interesting and I would love to hear the, the English version because I would probably not understand the French version at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, but um, I, I found that very interesting as a, as a starting point, to be honest. So my follow-up question here would be, how important do you think is narration to, to a game in today's board game and card game industry? I think it's very important. You know, the word that keeps popping up to my mind uh, when I think about games is escapism. So when you play a game, you're having an experience. You want to have the possibility to just run away from the real world for all our problems and issues of the week. And on the weekend, you just want to have an experience. And this is when narration and uh, just a game that feels real you know it, it feels like you're doing something that is real in a world that is really fleshed out and i think this is when you create the most uh, powerful sense of escapism is when there's a story behind it there is extensive world building and the game is doing something or is proposing to do something within that world that makes a lot of sense yeah and i think there is one additional aspect and that's also the the illustration and the graphic design and you just mentioned in the beginning um that this is uh i don't know that's your profession or that's at least where you come from um and that's something that i immediately um um yeah realized when i when i saw the kickstarter page um that this was done very professionally so um what is uh what was more or less um Yeah, you're 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 part of it. So, what what exactly did you do yourself, and what kind of uh, of things did you did you put out to, to um, I don't know to a third person or so? That's a very good question. So, um, originally, um, uh, I am the art director, but um, I'm not uh, an illustrator, so to say. So, there is a couple of illustrations in the the game of American Wars that I did myself. Um, but there is 120 single illustrations, so I would not have had the time to, to do all of them, plus the graphic design, plus other things. So um, my con contribution is um, just looking at the card. All the card backs were done by me, uh, and I did the card frames and all the graphic design around it. But the illustrations uh, were done by very talented illustrators from across the world, I mean, we've had illustrators on probably four or five continents and they did a terrific job. Um, they really trusted us with the project and they, they were really, 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 really helpful in fleshing out our vision. So uh, what would happen typically is um, I would uh, consult with Lies about characters in the, in the book and I mean, in the story. And uh, so, so have, for example, the uh, the Paladin of the Guard, that is a very famous card in the blue deck, is uh, what does it look like? How does it move? How does it interact with, uh, with its surroundings? And we would develop a brief that we would send to the illustrators, and then they would give life to it. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how that brief looked like, that briefing? So what kind of information did you, did you hand over to the illustrators? Um, that yeah enable them to to make this great job 
So the, the, the thing that is most important in graphic design and art in general is to be able to come up with uh, the proper references for the people working on the project to understand. So basically, uh, for the Paladin of the Gar, what we had in mind was something that was uh, reminiscent of an Eldar from uh, the Warhammer universe. So something kind of like, uh, not necessarily an elf, but something very swift, something very elegant, something very magnificent, but not something that's corny. It's even though it's in the blue deck and the blue deck is, are kind of the good guys, it needs to look dangerous. So we would find references. We would just deep, dive really deep on, for example, Pinterest. Pinterest, for people who want to develop games, is a great place to find references and to find inspiration. And so we would just go through there and, and find the right references. And also, um, since I'm a graphic designer, I've, I've, I did a lot of drawing at school, obviously. So I was always able to come up with little sketches just so that the illustrator would just kind of understand what is really uh, wanted. And then you would just kind of classify um, in different categories what the character looks like. So you talk about the clothes, you talk about the material. Also something that's very important and, and people, and, and I know you want to develop a strategic card game, so keep in mind how is the illustration going to look in a small card frame? Because one thing we forget is that Sometimes illustrations are beautiful on screen, but when you put them in a very small format like a card, uh, it's very hard to understand what's going on. So you always have to keep in mind that it needs to be something that is impactful on a very small scale. And that's how you get really good card art because good card art it doesn't necessarily translate into good art in itself. We were very surprised that some of the illustrations that are good are magnificent in the card art and vice versa. Some of the illustrations that are just extremely well done in the card frame, they, they just don't work as well. Yeah, that's a um, very good advice. And what immediately came to my mind uh, were some of the um, the artworks and illustrations or your graphic design on the Kickstarter campaign, uh, where a lot of uh, art uh, illustrations really uh, come out of the of the frame um in in the graphics so that look i think that looks really really great um and i don't know that just came into my mind when you talked about that the card uh, the illustration needs to fit the frame oh that's very important you know you, you always have to try to to look for a strong gimmick so the 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 the, the central theme for the the design of the cards was i wanted them to look like they were three-dimensional so kind of like this object i wanted to them to feel like almost like they were heavy, like it's an, an object. I was discussing this with um, one of my best friends, who's a creative director in a in a famous um, advertising co company, and and she said that yeah, the cards need to feel like they have power. They need to feel like they're magical in some sense. And so to do that, they need to be yeah treated like a, a very fine object. And the magic comes when the illustration, which is two D comes out of the frame and then you can say that the card comes to life yeah I, I i love the look and feel of it so it's pretty 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 well done so thank you, you just yeah you just um you just mentioned um a lot of tasks that you have taken over as the art director and i know that uh this task can be let's say taking more time than people 
um, anticipate in the beginning or plan for in the beginning? So um, maybe that's a stupid question, but in how long did it typically take you to to come up with all of that description for, let's say, one card in average or so? So it's a very good question, actually, and it, it varies from uh, brief to brief. So um, the... Um, Some of the of the card art is uh, not directly from the story. It's uh, kind of on the side. It's still in the world of Arakan, but it's not um, something that is something that we can let the illustrator with a lot of freedom. But there's a lot of examples like this uh, where we didn't have something specific in mind, and and sometimes illustrators have terrific ideas. You always want to to find part partnerships with uh, people. That, that can really do a lot on their own and you don't have to, to guide them too much. So for example, like the Paladins was very important that they look a certain way, but there's um, other characters. Uh, let me think of one uh, like for, for a very simple card, like uh, uh, like an ogre. Or you, you, you let the person really just run wild with the, the brief. So typically creating a brief for an illustration, it could last anywhere from 30 minutes two, three hours. And, um, and for very important characters, I would spend a lot of time sending um, adjustment notes to the illustrator. Uh, but sometimes it's just a one shot and the illustrator comes up with the perfect uh, image, something that's even better than what I would have imagined, you know? And so it's, it really varies. So it could be anywhere from, yeah, like a half an hour to uh, three or, or even more hours for certain uh, characters. Yeah, that sounds like a like a lot of work for those, I don't know, 120 cards you said in the beginning? Uh, correct, correct. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't happen overnight. It, it, we, yeah. we started uh, the in, in 2019 for the illustrations. Okay. So we already uh, talked about a lot of aspects of, of your game, cards, uh, design, and so on. So before we dive deeper into the game and the design of it, could you maybe explain how the game actually works so that the listeners have a better understanding of uh, what we are talking about? Absolutely. So um, Arakan Wars is um, mostly a two-player game, but with uh, three and four-player modes are very fun. It's, um, so it's a duel. Uh, it's, uh, it's a battle. Um, the specifics is basically you build your deck, you have a 23 card deck. And, uh, one of the particularities of Arakan Wars is that we have a point system. So each card has a, a value of points. And so every deck must have 23 cards mandatory, uh, and the total added values of 125 points, no more. So this, this is something we took from Warhammer. I was really a fan of, uh, uh, army lists. You can't have more than 2,000 points versus 2,000 points. So we kind of kept that in mind in terms of balance. Um, and so it, it, it lasts nine rounds. It's kind of like a boxing uh, match. So you go first, then the other player goes. And um, the thing that, that is central to Eric and Wars is that all the placements and all the interactions most of the time must be from adjacent cards. So basically, you attack, you have to be adjacent things like that all the interactions it, it really after you know a couple of rounds it becomes a whole board of cards that can all interact with one another and this is where strategy comes from is there's strategy when you build your deck but there's also strategy of what cards you place at what moment and there is no casting cost you can place very high value cards from the beginning 
and then uh, low values. So it's really up to you. There's a lot of freedom in that sense. And at the end of the ninth round, it's kind of like a battle royale. So the player that has the most points of his cards remaining on the battlefield wins the game. It's just simple as that. Yeah, that sounds uh, sounds very interesting. And I'm looking forward to dive uh, into it a little bit deeper. So um, what kind of card types do you have in the game is it just a uh, just creature that you slam on the board or do you have some some other kind of card types that's a well? very good question so we have three card types so the main card type is uh, the creature cards it's uh, really the cards that are going to be the, the lifeblood of your deck uh, then we have spell cards now spell cards uh, the way they work in American wars is that they don't last more than a round so they're not going to be placed at one point and be there for the whole duration of the game. And usually they're very powerful because since they last only one round, they must make something happen. And uh, they're really cool because this is where you're going to be developing your combos. And then there's the third card, third type of card, excuse me, uh, the land card. So land cards, they're not mana. They're like your fortresses. So basically, it's a card that's going to give you bonus, uh, usually like a defensive or attack bonus. But what's special about these land cards is that we wanted to recreate how it would work in a medieval situation. If the card is defeated by your opponent, it conquers that card, which means that it becomes his card and the value becomes his value at the end of the game. So a lot of the time, what happens is that just like in a medieval situation, medieval battle, uh, it's you're always trying to conquer the land card of your opponent. And it's, it's, it makes it really fun. It makes it really lively. It creates kind of like a narration. Once there's the land card that's there, you try to, to go and attack it because this is where there's the biggest um, shift in points in terms of balance. It's really cool. And uh, so those are the, the three card types. And did you did you have those three card types from the very beginning or did they develop over time? Or did you start with, I don't know, eight card types and had to remove several of them? So how was the development with regard to the card types? So the three card types had always been there. Uh, the only um, difference is that we, uh, we used to have um, spells that lasted for the whole duration of the game and it was it was cool but it was it with the card set we used to have back in those uh, playtesting uh, years it didn't make sense so that's not to say that in the future there won't be spells that last the whole duration of the game but at that time at that moment with uh, the, the creatures and the lands we had it just it didn't make sense Okay, so you also mentioned that um, restrictions that cards always need to be placed uh, next to another card. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about your ideas behind that restriction and maybe also about the the learnings in general when it comes to positioning and card placement. Um, and yeah, maybe why you have this restriction in the game, I mean, you could also say you can place the card wherever you want on the uh, on the battlefield. So let us uh, let us know Now, what, what, the, what the reasons a, are behind. A very important question because um, our game doesn't require the the battle mat. Now that's that's a reveal, that's a shocker because we we use it all the time. 
Um, but originally the game did not have a battle map. And um, that's the reason why all the cards are placed must be adjacent because if you don't have a battle map, you don't know where you can place your cards. You don't know where the, the grid spaces are. And the reason now we have a battle map is because on our first convention we did back in 2019, we uh, we wanted to impress people. So the, the game, I mean, asks for a battle map in, in a sense, just really to have a very, um, not narrative, but a very escapist uh, experience when you play the game. So uh, we decided to have the, 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 uh, a map with uh, the actual map of Arakan, so people can kind of get a sense of this very geopolitical situation in within the game and um so the people just went crazy for the battle mat they just did and when we would ask them uh would you play without it they said no we don't want to play without we we need to play with it and so we just kept it because people there was so much demand for it and um but you see that's that's the very interesting thing is that you don't really necessarily need it you actually do need it for alternative modes is because in the kickstarter and we can talk about that later we introduce terrain cards that interact with the grid and that's very different um but just the the pure essence of the game doesn't require the battle map that's actually really interesting so that you found out that the people really desire it by yeah by playing with them and get, gathering their feedback I mean, that just shows how important it is to yeah to talk to the people before you, I don't know, let's say, start your Kickstarter campaign or so, um, because you could have easily started the, the Kickstarter maybe without it. Absolutely. You know, we did about 20 conventions from um, since uh, February 2019 um, until, um, until COVID hit. Uh, we went all over the place trying to get as much feedback as possible in different areas. We went all over France. We went to Belgium. Uh, we went to, to a bunch of places and uh, we had some really important feedback that has impacted the game because um, there is a wealth of knowledge out there that is just incredible. The number of games that came out, we had no idea. And everybody knows a game that, that nobody knows about, you know, and they have to, they learn something <laughs> mm -hmm. from it. And they can tell you, oh, you remember Lords of War? Oh, it was, it came out in England and this is how it was played and this is what they did right and this is what they did wrong. And you can share that information in conventions. And I really recommend um, to do as many clubs and conventions uh, when uh, game designing because you just have access to so much wealth of information and people are very nice and willing to share. That's a very good advice. So when it let let let's look at the results of the Kickstarter campaign um, just for a second. Be did did, did would you say it uh, it turned also out um, on a on a backer level 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 that you went to so many conventions? So were you able to analyze the data afterwards and say I don't know. Um, X percent of the backers came from France, uh, Belgium, and so on, so that you would say it also was a success to go there, not only for feedback, but also for um, creating that desire for your game and finding your customers. Absolutely. So um, uh, essentially about half of the backers um, were from France. And, and it makes a lot of sense because uh, we, we just met so many people in the conventions. And you know how it is. Word to mouth is very effective. And so, you know, when the Kickstarter hit, even people we had not met had heard about us. 
because uh, they had a, a friend who went to the convention and said, oh, I can wow, there's this and that. It's really, really cool. And since the whole team is uh, French and from France, it's, it's very easy to, to, to network on the social medias and stuff like that. And so it really paid off our strategy of, of just going all over France and, and talking about the game. And uh, yeah, we had a lot of people that, you know, that, that, that saw us back in 2019 in Cannes and they would write us a comment saying that, yeah, remember two years ago, it was awesome. I backed the Titan pledge. I'm so excited for you guys. So yeah, a lot of uh, really, really, really cool people we met and um, uh, uh, really a large number of people backed uh, the Kickstarter that we had met in conventions. We, 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 we know them. Okay, that um, yeah, that makes total sense. And I mean, when you go to a convention, you you always you are in competition with the with the large players. And I mean, I think this is also your first game that that you bring out. Um, you probably don't have uh, the the money and the marketing power to I don't know to have a huge booth there and a lot of uh, a lot of media attention in the very beginning. So, do you have some advice for let's say? smaller uh, designers and publishers that also want to go to conventions and yeah get the attention for their game there oh absolutely so um one thing that is really uh, at least on the french circuit in terms of conventions is that um they have uh, areas dedicated to prototypes and so uh, a lot of the time the uh, is free you just just send in the paperwork and 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 you get a spot for free And, uh, but you always have to ask, you know, if you ask, you find out that things sometimes are much easier than, than the way they appear. Now, obviously, for the bigger conventions, like, say, um, the Cannes, uh, if you want to have a booth, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be expensive regardless. But you should never uh, fear because, uh, for example, Cannes has what they call Nuit du Oeuf. So it's the nights of, of off, the off nights. And this is where you have all the people bringing in their prototypes. It's, it's after the, um, the Saturday and the, and the Sunday. It's at night, you know, and it's right next to the festival and it's official. And so uh, during all the conventions, you can go, just go usually and, and, and have a spot for free um, and, and then try to network with people and, and a lot of a lot of people in the organizations um, have places where you could stay, uh, either f uh, at people's houses that, that, that work at the festival or, or, or cheap uh, housing situations. So um, if you ask around, and uh, you, you can really find ways to, to, to save a lot of money and to go everywhere. And how did you, I mean, you started in 2019 to, to travel around through these conventions and how did you, um, and let's say, keep the, keep the interest and the attention of the people that you met back then um, until, until today, until 2021? So did you add them to an email list and send regular updates or, or how did you, did you stay in contact with them? Yes. Yeah, so for, for all upcoming um, game designers, um, 
the one of the most important um, assets you can develop is your email um, list, of course. And so um, after uh, each pl player had played a game, uh, we would ask a questionnaire what they thought of the game. We had some specific questions to, 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 to have some feedback on particular aspects. And then uh, we asked them if they wanted, they could subscribe to our newsletter and get all the news and... Uh, that way we can contact them when uh, when something's happening like for example when we went to another festival or another convention or of course when the kickstarter is up and that's just uh, the best way because um there is a, a, a whole number of ways to, to get an email address you can do uh, facebook marketing or giveaways and stuff like that but the every email address is not worth other email addresses an email address from a person you met in person that's going to remember you is worth a lot more than if you did a giveaway on on board game geek for example so that's something to keep in mind is that um it's very important to go out and, and meet the people yeah that's a very good advice as well so um i would like to I mean, we are jumping back between the topics, but I would like to come back a little bit more to the to the game, actually. Of course. So, so um, I have seen that the game also has some kind of um, phases or steps that are done simultaneously between the between the two players, or with the, for the two players. So, while other aspects of the game are then turn-based or so alternating between the two players. So, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the different steps in a game uh, in the game and why some of them are performed at the same time while others uh, yeah are done one after another that's a very good question because a lot of people have been uh, wondering about this and um, so there are nine rounds um, in a game of arrogant wars and so the way rounds are structured is that the player beginning the round will go uh, last during the next round so we kind of switch um, so there are five steps within a round and there are five phases. So one is the draw phase and uh, typically you would be drawing two cards from your deck. Um, then the player going first places uh, two of his cards adjacent to another card on the battlefield. Uh, face down, of course. That's the bluffing aspect of the game. That's really a lot of fun. Then his opponent does the same, places two cards face down. Uh, then phase three is the reveal phase, which is done simultaneously. So both players reveal their cards. At that po uh, moment, they place their faction tokens because we have a system of token, of activation faction tokens. And uh, then the player going first activates, attacks, moves, whatever the cards can do, all of his cards without the, the interference of his opponent. And then his opponent does the same, same thing. So w why it's structured that way is, um, so first, very important. So why does the first player places two cards and not one player, one card, and the other player, one card, and the other player, another card? So what we found is that by testing both ways of doing things, so one player placing two cards or one player placing one, then the other player with another one, then the player with another one. Is that what we really want to try to achieve with Arrogant Wars is for people to find card combinations. It is very important for me. This is where I have the most fun when I'm playing a game is to find the unbelievable combo, the, the really intricate uh, 
weird, uh, magical, uh, powerful, special edition of cards that's going to make something spectacular happen. And so if you're able to maneuver to, well, not to maneuver, but to, um, to have control of where two at least of your cards are going to be, there is it's going to be more likely that you will be able to develop those combos. And so, and this is also why we, the, first, the player going first activates all his cards without the other player interfering. Uh, the reason is that we want people to be able to develop large strategies and um, to not be countered at every turn. And, um, and since um, the, the turns are, are swapped during the, the next rounds, it, it, there, you, there will always be the same number of, of people um, going second and then going first the next round because this is very important is that what where the power lies is when you go second and then you go first the next round because that means that basically you're playing twice in a row and a little story is that uh, back in 2019 there were 10 rounds for Arakan Wars and we always noticed that the player going first on the 10th round would always win almost like 75%. We did a lot of play testing. It was 75% for the player going first on the last round. And so what we kind of noticed is that there was an uneven number of times when the player goes second, then goes first. And it was favored by the one that was always playing last. And so what happened is that we decided to go with an odd number of rounds. So seven, we started seven, but it was too short. Nine, I was the sweet spot. And it was very balanced. And the number of, of, of people winning when playing first and second was about equal. So we thought, okay, that, that's, the, that's something very important that we discovered in the game, is that that's where all the power is, is playing twice in a row, playing second and then being the first player in, in, in the next round. Yeah, and uh, I track the exact same thing for my game. So I always track who's the first player and who's winning at the end so that I can at the end then measure um, if there is a first player advantage and um, if so, how bad it is. Um, and if you do not do not track these kind of things when you play test, um, you, you might you might not get aware of it. So you maybe have some kind of idea, something is odd, but you don't don't exactly know what. So that's why I'm, I think it's very important to keep track of, of some of those statistics uh, when you um, when you play test. Absolutely. That's a very good tool to have for any uh, game designers is a, is a way to monitor all the statistical um, data that has been gathered. So whether it be in a, Excel file or, or, or folder or some kind of a text-based uh, uh, um, software. It's really important to uh, to yeah to know everything and then to have a way to uh, to be to analyze uh, a lot of data at once, kind of visualize it in a way. And uh, because a lot of what we do is is kind of like mathematics, it's 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 it's, it's a lot of algorithmic uh, thinking, and so you really want to keep track of all of all the data points you can uh, you can have access to. So 
I have another question with regard to that. Um, you mentioned in the beginning that you have some kind of army list for your game, and that's actually what, it, what reminded me uh, of Warhammer when I when I, what I meant in the beginning. Um, so there's a point value for for, for each card, um, and when you build your deck, you have a certain threshold. I think it's a uh, 125 or so you mentioned for the uh, for the list that you can um, you can put into your deck. Correct. So the, uh, there's one there's one difference I. Th I see to Warhammer, for example. In Warhammer, you, you, you have the army, the value, and you put the entire value on the board in the beginning or, or very soon after. Um, and in your game, you have some kind of um, you have some kind of deck, and you draw cards, and you, um, you, 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 you then deploy those cards to the to the to the board. So, um, do you play all of them, or do you have some cards left in the end? So um, at the beginning of the game, you start with a hand of seven cards to have choices during the whole uh, first phases of the, of the game. And then you will draw two at each um, following round. So at the end of the ninth round, you will have had all of your cards in hand, but you will probably end up with five remaining. Uh, that's not always the case because we have cards that allow you to deploy cards from your hand. So sometimes you can end up with uh, no cards in hand. But uh, you will have access to all 23 during one game. Okay, that makes a lot of sense that you at least see all of the cards and get the option to play them. Um, because I was a little bit feared that there was could could be some kind of advantage for the player who who just I don't know drew the the cards with the higher with the higher point values and and saw, saw at least the cards with a higher point value. But that makes a, a total sense. So, so did you also um, track which cards were kind of, um, let's say, winning or be part of the winning team or let's say decide decide the game or had a major impact of the on the game, so um, that you then afterwards were able to adjust the point value as some kind of uh, balancing mechanic for the cards. Absolutely. So we started in um, in 2018 playtesting amongst ourselves, and uh, we quickly realized that some cards were very powerful during the whole game uh, compared to other ones. Now, obviously, um, there is an attribute that called the flight attribute, which allows the card to move uh, at each uh, of your turn. And we discovered very quickly that this needs to be very highly priced. And um, so um, not only just one card, but types of cards and mechanics uh, associated with certain amount, certain types of cards. We noticed very quickly that, that they needed to be priced very high. So anything that has movement in a, in a way has to be priced uh, accordingly. And uh, uh, there's also something that is a little bit more um, uh, hard to follow is that we noticed um, there was snowball or swarm effects when you uh, had a certain number of the same type of card, especially cards that, that are kind of powerful. And so, um, yeah, we had to, to have countermeasures. So the first countermeasure, obviously, is the price. Now, one thing that's very important to notice is that um, we have for uh, high-valued cards, there is two prices. There's the deck building um, price, which is usually much higher than the, the end of the game price. So you can't, if you have a card that scores 25, that's 25 points in deck building cost, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of points. And so at the end of the game, it's going to be worth only 10. So you can't really kind of stockpile your, your valuable cards and not have them interact. No, no, no. If you have a card that's 
uh, has a deck building cost of 25, you're probably going to want to use it as many times as you as you can. And um, so that is one of the ways we 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 have we still keep control of uh, the very powerful cards is that we can offset the value to really high cost and at the end of the game not going to be extremely valuable so they're, they're kind of um in a sense um rendered uh like a normal card but have much power but you will be penalized in terms of points at the end so there's kind of like a balance and um, a lot of it comes down to play testing and play testing and play testing and this is probably uh, um, across the whole team. There's a team of five of us working on this project, among other projects for uh, the Arakan project. And this is probably the aspect we spend the most time on is playtesting. Let's talk a bit about the the combat system of the game. So we, we now, or at least I now understood um, how you construct a deck and then how you move through the different phases and play the cards uh, on the battlefield. But how does the actual combat work between uh, opposing opposing creatures? And yeah, just, just tell us a little bit about the combat system. So um, the combat system, so each uh, creature has um, an attack and a defense uh, value, uh, really simple. And um, so um, the interactions, as I said um, previously, they, uh, they happen with the adjacent borders of the cards. So uh, a typical uh, attack um, situation uh, is uh, you go first and you have a card uh, that is adjacent to an enemy card. The enemy card has a two in defense value and uh, you have a three in attack value. So you attack that card, that card is destroyed, simple as that. However, if you only had uh, your card had two in attack value, two versus two does not work. Now, um, something that is uh, probably a lot of listeners will have noticed is I'm not talking about um, life points. I'm not talking about wounds. I'm not talking about uh, things like that. So the combat system is binary in African Wars. So either the card is destroyed and you suffer no um, uh, uh, wounds or, or casualties or either it is not. It's, it's really simple uh, like that. And uh, when you attack card, it doesn't inflict anything on you. It's really binary. The, way, the reason we do that is because a lot of um, the combats are determined by what we call group attacks. So basically, if you have an enemy card that has a, a defense value of four, which is pretty high, and um, you want to destroy it, most likely you'll have to use several of your cards. So for example, if uh, you have a card that has two in attack value, another that has two in attack value, and a third one that has one in attack value, two plus two plus one, then it was five. If they're adjacent or have a specific attribute that allows them to interact with that card, the, the, their attack being grouped together will uh, allow you to, de to defeat and destroy the, uh, the enemy card. And that's how uh, the points kind of flow during a game is you will be placing cards that are uh, worth points and then you're going to try to destroy cards of your opponent or even conquer if there's a land. Um, cards of your opponent, um, that's how he loses points. And um, so it's kind of like there's this two-dimensional thing for the points is that you place, you gain, and then you destroy, and then the, the, the opponent loses. Yeah, you know, I immediately get the kind of 
tactical decisions that you have to make uh, in order to um, prepare these these group attacks or prevent the group attacks from the opponent. So um, yeah, that help, helps me a lot to, and probably the listeners also to understand what kind of decisions you have to make in the game. And um, I mean, let, let's go even a little bit deeper and uh, tell us, about a few of the keywords you have on the cards because i have been you have keywords like omni strike ranged attack uh, flight movement perforation and so on um, and i'm a big big fan of those uh, of those keywords and i always think that they are the bread and butter that um, that that make a game make a card game work so i would like to learn a little bit more of the, about the different keywords you have in the game Okay, cool. Um, so um, there is uh, on the card you will have the attack, defense value, and you will have uh, a parchment with uh, with the text. And on the text you will find um, any number of um, of um, mechanics or keyword systems. The first system that that people will will see is what we call the attributes. So the attributes is uh, is as simple as. Uh, an eagle has the flight attribute. So basically, an attribute is a, is the god given um, ability of the card. Like for example, uh, a flight attribute is a perfect example. A horse will have the movement attribute, and uh, a very uh, powerful creature will have what we call omni strike or perforation. And so they really are trying to um, emulate some some real life. Uh, ability into the card. So, for example, with the flight attribute, uh, the card can move anywhere on the battlefield and then attack. The movement attribute is kind of like that, but nerfed. So, for example, some of uh, some some horse uh, men or or mountain knights will have the movement attribute, and it's always followed with uh, a number, and it's the number of spaces it can move. Like for example, movement two can move up to two spaces and then attack. So it's kind of like flight, but really nerfed. And then we have the ranged attack attribute. Ranged attack is just as simple as an archer can hit a target far away. So ranged attack is kind of like movement, but it doesn't move. <laughs> so it has a number attached to it. So ranged attack with three in value can attack to up to three spaces and um, so this is how it works so you see it's, it's really imitating real life abilities and then we have some that are a little bit more um, uh, specific to the game like for example perforation so perforation what it does is it attacks and then if you destroy the creature the attack continues but it's um with a minus one in the attack value so it's kind of like a shock wave so very typically the cards that will have that attribute are very powerful high attack values like the big monsters will have perforation which means that when they attack it's just there's a shock wave and this is one of the most powerful attributes because it allows you to destroy several creatures and if you buff it up if you make a combo if you set it up properly this is the the type of game changing event that can happen so those are really important um attributes to have in your deck then you have omni strike and omni strike is really simple is basically when the car attacks it attacks all four borders at the same time and uh, usually the same thing those are for uh, pretty high uh, 
of value and very powerful cards. And uh, so that's for the attributes. And the attributes, how it's manifested in terms of graphic design is that there's the name and there's a symbol, a logo. And it's treated in a different manner in terms of typography as the rest of the text. And the, usually the rest of the text, uh, let's take the, the creature cards, it will be what we call skills. And a skill, what it is, is you have to imagine it's something that was acquired by the card. And uh, so skills, the mechanics is that whatever is written on the skill have, works during the whole game. It's kind of like an effect. And uh, this is the, the terminology we use for spells that have the same kind of uh, mechanics as uh, the skills. So um, creature cards have skills. Um, spells have effects. And uh, land cards have what we call benefits. So basically, it does the same thing, but we use a different terminology because it's a different type of card. And there's also act, what we call actions, which are kind of like, instead of attacking, you do an action, and then there's a text that says what it, what it does. And sometimes we also have what we call weaknesses because there are cards that sometimes to offset their power, we're just going to add a little weakness to, to, to make it a little bit spicy. Can you give me an example for one of those weaknesses? Absolutely. So uh, one of our favorite cards is um, uh, the infamous Child Eater. So the Child Eater is like <laughs> the biggest, baddest creature in the red deck. It has foreign attack value, which is a lot. It has perforation, which is dangerous. But the, the weakness is as follows. If the Child Eater, when it attacks doesn't destroy or conquer all the, the, the cards on its uh, line of attack will be destroyed. So what this means is that it has a foreign attack value and perforation. Perforation is not a choice. It goes and there is no way to go around it. So what that means is that if there's a, a line of cards that you want to attack, the first one has two in defense, no big deal. It's crushed because you have foreign attack value. But then Perforation, what it says is that for each card that is destroyed, you lose one in attack value. So the second card gets three in its face. If that card had three in defense, it would not be destroyed. And hence, the Child Eater would be destroyed. So it would be a choice for the, the player playing the Child Eater. Either attack and have your Child Eater die or not attack and that's a choice. Yeah, that I love so many things about that. Uh, the first one is that you have a very strong card that people I know they 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 must be excited to play with with that with such a card. Um, and the second thing is you have some kind of um, uh, of answer to that card. You give the opponent a, a way to answer it, but it might also be with come with a cost because um, he might have to 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 place a, a, one of his creatures in a position that is just to counter this card, um, the Child Eater, and he could have used this card in another spot maybe even better, but he has to use it there. So that's a kind of interesting decision for the opponent. And then you have also an interesting decision for the player uh, again, um, whether or not he wants to activate it um, or maybe work around it to, to use it later or so. so um, and you give that, that creature a lot of, um, let's say, identity because uh, yeah, that's... Uh, that's something that people will remember. It's uh, if they have weaknesses as well. That's uh, as well. That's something that, yeah, that stucks with people and creates a lot of interesting stories and um, emergent narratives when 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 you play with those cards. So I, 
just from hearing it, I think it's a very interesting design of the card. Well, thank you very much, Marvin. And yeah, I really agree with what you just said. Um, you really have to, to, when you create cards and mechanics, it, it has to be evocative of, of real life situations or, or it has to make uh, some kind of a sense uh, with the storytelling behind the card. And, and for example, with the Child Eater, what we had in mind was it's just so hungry that it, it once it starts eating, it has to keep eating and eating. eating and when it stops, it, it just dies. <laughs> yeah uh it's a it's a it's a great uh great uh, design so maybe just uh one one more of the cards so what is your your favorite effect or skill on a card so except for so, the weaknesses so uh, my um you, can also you... be a combo also Okay, like so uh, there is a secret combo that I won't mention that I really love. I'll, I'll let um, players discover it because otherwise <laughs> it's no fun. But what I can say is that um, there is one card in the red deck that is by far my favorite. It's called um, Essence Absorption. And what Essence Absorption does, and something that's very typical uh, for, for, for the red deck, is that the red deck destroys itself to make itself more powerful. And I think that's really cool because the, the, the decks don't do that. And what Essence Absorption does is that you sacrifice one of your cards and you choose another one of the, your cards. And that card gets all the attack value, the attribute, the skills, everything of that card. And usually this card, Essence Absorption, is the beginning of extremely powerful combos, but that come at a cost because you're destroying your own cards, so it has to be worth it. So I like this concept of gaining maximum power, but for a very, very high price, and it has to be worth your while. Yeah, that uh, is a. I think that's a specific play style um, that is appealing for some kind of players um, probably not for all of them um, as with many play styles but it's it's very good to have something like that in uh, in a game and if you would look at the different different cards that you have in in, in your game would you say that you that the game is uh, has a lot of different play styles and a lot of this to discover for players in in different ways Absolutely, yeah. So uh, we try to be as uh, asymmetric as possible, but not for uh, asymmetry's sake, but to, to correspond to um, the, uh, the the lore and the, the how, and how in the story those uh, the, the, those characters, those factions are, and so. Um, Yeah, the red deck is very power-oriented, obviously. It's very uh, nasty. It's on the attack constantly. It doesn't really protect itself at all. And uh, it's, it's, it's very aggressive. Uh, we have the green deck. And with the green deck, what was interesting is that just I wanted to look at uh, how things happen in nature and uh, just in a jungle. And you try to kind of imagine how in a magical jungle and something that was really hyper jungle how it would um manifest itself in terms of mechanics and one of the uh, the aspects I, i really like there's two aspects are in the season one of the game i really like and one is the concept of regeneration so basically there's this um, land card called the tree of life and it basically allows your cards that have been defeated to not die 
But if they're defeated twice, then they die. So it's kind of like they regenerate. And there's another concept in a, in a spell card that's called Mimicry. And what Mimicry does is that you can choose any of your creatures on the, on the battlefield and it imitates any other creature, allied or enemy. So it was kind of playing on the concept of uh, accelerated mutation and accelerated evolution, stuff like that. And when you um, uh, superpose it with the gray deck, the gray deck is... Uh, uh, from a faction called the Biotur faction, which is basically the land of men. And it is very different in terms of play style because basically is you're trying to fortify your um, positions and you have all the tools of a classic medieval army like catapults and stuff like that. But uh, as a counterbalance, you don't have like this uh, wild and weird magic that, that some of the other factions have. Yeah, that that sounds like a lot of different play styles, and that's something that I really adore when I when I buy a game that there is much to explore and that I can play it in different in different ways. So um, let's let's talk a little bit about the Kickstarter campaign, if that's okay for you. So um, you, uh, I think the Kickstarter campaign just ended a few weeks ago or so. So yes. And um, tell, tell me a little bit about, let's say, the journey. So when did you start to prepare the, the Kickstarter uh, and when did it go into the, into the hot preparation phase, let's say? Okay, so um, the, the Kickstarter launched on June 8th and ended on uh, the 29th of June. So it lasted 22 days. It was the most intense period of my life by a long, <laughs> long margin. It is incredibly intense and fascinating. And uh, it's really, you're, it feels like you're living at 100 miles an hour. And so uh, we really started um, planning uh, heavily for it back in November of 2020. So what, what I mean by that is, is basically... Uh, devising a um, marketing strategy because obviously, uh, especially during COVID season, you can't do conventions or you can't do uh, you can't meet with people. But regardless, it's always really recommended to be on the, on, on the internet when you want to do your Kickstarter in terms of communication to the maximum because a lot of it happens on on board game groups on Facebook. There's uh, BGG, of course. And there's also Discord. So there, there's, there, there are a lot of hotbeds to communicate. So back in November, we, we just devised the strategy um, looking for uh, different levels. So uh, you have different levels for marketing uh, strategies. So one level would be uh, things like Facebook ads. Um, so direct uh, to consumer marketing, there's that. Um, there would be like banners on specific sites like ClickTrack or BGG. Uh, and of course, you have uh, influencers, uh, which are a big part of a strategy. So we try to have a, a kind of a diverse um, uh, way of attacking marketing. Um, and um, one of the most important things, and, and to, to, to go back to um, the conventions and stuff like that, is that uh, for a, a, a card game like Arakan Wars, the most important thing is the community. So we very early on, we built the Facebook groups because we, we didn't have a Discord yet. And so what we did is just try to get as many people to go on the Facebook groups. Uh, There's one in English, one in French, 
to interact. We uh, post regularly things like works in progress for the art. Uh, we'd ask uh, things in polls and see what people thought, um, or just general trying to have fun around Arakan and Arakan Wars. So that was also a big part. So the marketing uh, thinking started in November, and uh, as well as uh, uh, really starting to build the community more and more and more and more. And um, so how you build a community, it's, 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 it's not hard, but it, it's very, you have to, it's going to take a lot of time. So there's several ways. One is through marketing campaigns for like giveaways or just talking about the game, soon on Kickstarter, join the Facebook group, learn all about it. Um, I also recommend strongly to, to go on um, Facebook groups and Instagram or more Facebook groups uh, and to ask questions, to talk about your game and see what people think. And uh, people will say, oh, that's awesome. Uh, and then you'll say, well, here's the Facebook group. You can learn more about it. And a lot of people will join that way. And so that's the marketing and that's really the communicating. And it's, uh, it's really crucial for a Kickstarter campaign to have the word out as much as possible. And, let me uh, give, let me ask you a question about sure. that. Because you mentioned um, you did a lot on Facebook because you didn't have a Discord back then. Yeah. So when you look at it retrospectively, would you would you start with a Facebook page again, or would you start with a Discord server, or or both, or uh, what did you so learn from it, having it, those different it, mediums? It's it's hard to answer because we're building Discord as we speak, so we don't, <laughs> okay. we, don't we don't yet know the power of Discord. What we learned after the fact though is that um a lot of card players use discord and um we just didn't have the resources back in back then to to spend time on, on discord which we don't know as much as other um, social uh, so, social networks and um uh 100 uh the facebook group was was really good um it was awesome we Because Facebook is a, is a simple ecosystem for communicating. You have people on other Facebook groups and you can bring them to your own Facebook group and they don't have to leave Facebook. They're still in the same ecosystem. Now, one thing that's very important, and uh, I know you're develop developing your card game, is that uh, Facebook is a little bit more board game centric than it is card game centric. So... Um, That's something to keep in mind. So it, it works well. I mean, you have communities. You have uh, uh, there's the um, flesh and blood uh, Facebook group that that's really active. Uh, uh, but you have to also think outside the box and, and probably Discord because we know of certain card games that have really active discourse, and we know this is a place we need to be. Um, so yeah, probably do the same thing. But uh, yeah, because we didn't have time, so we couldn't have done the Discord in time. Okay, and um, when did you, let's say, enter the the hot phase when where you spent a lot of mon money for the ads, for example? Was it I don't know four weeks before the before the uh, Kickstarter started, eight weeks before, or six so, months before? So um, the thing that uh, if we could have a do-over, we would, um, and this is something I, I strongly recommend to all. Uh, future Kickstarter campaigns is to open the Kickstarter um, pre, uh, what's it called? Um, 
uh, the subscribe uh, page for Kickstarter when the Kickstarter page is not live yet, where people mm-hmm. can just subscribe to it to have it live to have that as soon as possible. So I think maybe we had it a little bit late, you know, and because a lot of the um, the marketing you'll be doing will be redirecting to that page, because obviously um, that's something to keep in mind is that you're uh, if you're doing a Kickstarter, you have to look for people who are, are on Kickstarter. And um, so you really have to focus on that. And so you have to build that um, subscribe page. You also have to build your groups. You also have to build your social networks and all that because all that is going to feed into it. And you also want to be able to, to speak to your community. That's very important. But yeah, to have the, uh, the Kickstarter page uh, live uh, soon is, is, is a good choice. And essentially, we kind of want to build over time and start with maybe very little money and um, yeah, because Kickstarter is very intense and fast, um, probably start spending bigger bucks uh, 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 at least a month in advance, but with already a little bit done, you know, because what we did in February, we did giveaway campaigns that, that, that did tremendous. Um, uh, there's a lot of things like that you can do and to, because at the same time, you want to have that Kickstarter page, having as many subscribers as possible, but you also want to think long-term and you want to have a lot of people in your email database. So you kind of do both start with the emails and then you build your subscriber base on Kickstarter. And, um, so, uh, yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's, it, 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 there's a lot of things you can do to build those up. What did you do as a giveaway? So um, we had the the prototypes. We we, we did a couple of uh, what we call the the demo boxes, and so the demo boxes has the 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 old card design, the old card art that we used when we went on uh, um, conventions and stuff like that. Now it's professionally printed. I mean, it's 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 like it's a real game, but it's it's not with the uh, the card design that people know today. And so we'd communicate with that because we, the, the, the final card design wasn't ready yet, you know. And so uh, we had those demo boxes that, that, that people really liked. It was kind of like this um, monolithical black thing. It was just Arkham Wars and gold, you know. And uh, so uh, that, those were the giveaways. And we would communicate on, um, on Facebook ads and uh, Instagram. And it was basically just subscribe and uh, we'll... Uh, uh, pick someone at random, and uh, that person will receive a demo box. And it, it works really well because it's it's a great way to uh, get the word out on the game. You know, it's it's not necessarily going to build a um, tremendous amount of uh, very pertinent emails, but everybody's going to know about it. And uh, we met some really key people during those giveaways. Uh, that were professionals that were in the industry um, with, with the giveaway because they, they saw it because everybody sees it, everybody shares it. Um, so uh, giveaways, I recommend not to do too many of them, but um, they're definitely a good way to uh, to get people's attention. Okay, very interesting. Thanks for the advice. Um, so another question would be, how much time did you actually spend uh let's say, the the weeks before the Kickstarter campaign and then during the Kickstarter campaign with uh, yourself and with how many people? Um, so uh, we have a team of five for the whole of Arakan project. And um, so uh, for the Kickstarter, uh, let me think, at least for myself, um, 
I recommend taking some vacation. So I'm I'm full. I'm 100% dedicated to the Aragon project for uh, since uh, 2020. So I had some savings that, which uh, allow me to uh, to do it full time, and um, we we really wanted to to place the bar as high as possible in terms of um, what uh, especially what we specialize in. So for me, it would have been graphic design. So um, I would spend. I started really being hyperactive from November 2020 to the end of the campaign. So um, probably working 70 to 80 hour weeks because there were uh, some assets that, that were extremely time consuming. So it's funny because besides the Kickstarter campaign, the time where I worked the hardest was around um, January because um, we were uh, we had filmed the playthrough video that people can mm-hmm. check on YouTube, uh, Eric Wars <laughs> uh, playthrough video. And uh, because we wanted to, 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 to have a playthrough video that was extremely entertaining. So it had to have scripting. It had to have uh, multi-angle filming. So that means a lot of editing. Uh, there's a lot of um, 2D, 3D work to kind of explain the game with effects and stuff like that. Uh, there was music done for it. Uh, there was a lot of sound effects also to be entertaining. And... Um, the editing and the, the VFX for that uh, specific asset, because we know that a playthrough video is super, super important to get people turned on to your game. That was just oh, 70 to 80 hour weeks, nonstop, <laughs> nonstop. But it was so much fun because that is just, I mean, that's what I live for is this, 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 to build assets like that that are really entertaining and cool. And we had a blast filming it also. It was really nice. But I will say that during the Kickstarter campaign, I don't know if I even slept, to tell you the truth. (laughs) It was just madness. It's just incredible. I mean, the excitement uh, mixed with uh, just uh, um, uh, reacting to what's going on. Because as you know, uh, Kickstarter is very uh, extreme at the beginning and very extreme at the end. Uh, so you have to keep momentum and stuff like that. So you have to come up with ideas that uh, things you hadn't thought of for the campaign and um, things like that. So no, no, it's it's a lot of work and uh, <laughs> it's 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 really cool, but uh, it's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> so did you uh, did you get a lot of good feedback during the campaign that you actually um, then? Um, also added to the campaign? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, we, we were absolutely listening to all the feedback we had received and, and, and things that maybe we had overlooked and people pointed it out and we acted on, uh, on it uh, immediately. One thing that was really fantastic is that the whole team was just laser focused during that period. And we just worked up a storm anytime we would feel that going one direction would be beneficial we just we could do it we 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 really could move mountains during that period because the excitement and uh and the and especially the attention that is generated is that when you're doing a kickstarter campaign for 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 people i don't know is that the the whole world is watching you because they know it's going to be for this very little piece of time and it's going to be like a couple weeks or maybe a couple of days for even for certain campaigns so everybody might be talking about you or at least your your fan base or your community is going to be super hyper active and so everybody's talking with you asking stuff uh, 
everybody has questions everybody has uh, all kinds of feedback to, so i mean the amount of um interactions that are created during those campaigns is just extraordinary and uh, we had absolutely fantastic feedback we had some people because uh one thing we discovered is that kickstarter has its own kind of community it's its own uh, ecosystem and we had some uh, some really very, very pertinent and nice backers that, that that would support us that they weren't on facebook they weren't on discord they weren't on instagram but they were on Kickstarter, so we met new people, and that was cool as well. And uh, no, it was quite a, a roller coaster ride, really, really intense. Yeah. So I know we already record for more than an hour, so that's typically the the time I I try to try to shoot for. But um, yeah, you're such a great guest, and I have so many questions. So if you allow me one more question, sure, sure. So okay, um, what about um the stretch goals so um is there anything that you can particularly um say that was super successful that were well received by your community or let's say what kind of stretch goal did really work that's probably oh, yeah. a good question no, I, 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 that's a good question and, and i actually have an answer for the for for, for, for that uh, because we uh kind of um what we did is uh, what really worked and was extremely well received. And that kind of, because you know, when during a Kickstarter campaign, there's the Kickstarter slump right in the middle. And what mm. we did to kind of counter that is that something that works really well is temporary stretch goals that everybody gets. But for in order for everybody to get that stretch goal, we need to reach a certain amount of funding in a certain amount of time. And that worked so freaking well. It's incredible. First, for the 24-hour gift we had, it was if we found under 24 hours, everybody gets this special card that's going to be there just for the Kickstarter. But everybody that backs for the Kickstarter will receive it. And as a result, we found it in three hours. And it was the same thing for the 24-hour gift, the 48-hour gift. And we even did it uh, towards the end uh, a version of, uh, it was a card, but it was a character. And in the story, it's a character that's kind of like a freelance character, like a mercenary type of person. And so we had the same character, but with the four factions. And uh, so every uh, X number of hours, if we reached that funding or that funding or that funding, we would unlock a new version of that uh, character. And this worked really well because people like storytelling. And when you storytell it and uh, when there is like a mission, uh, it gets the community super engaged. So what I recommend is really to do that, is do those uh, kind of temporary stretch goals uh, you have to, where people have to be on their seats and, and really talk about it. And also we did something that is kind of wild and um I don't know if I recommend it or not, but I know it had some really fantastic feedback is that we had, we invented our own type of stretch goal. I don't know if you remember the, 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 the Kickstarter page, but it's the, it was called the fun gauge and the fun gauge is just, it, it, it fills up. And once it's to the maximum, you get, everybody gets the mystery reward. Nobody knows what it is, but we say, we tell people that it's just, it's, it'll, it'll, it'll happen if there's hype. And so, of course, at the end of the campaign, it happened, but it got a lot of people talking and 
we said that, yeah, you have to generate hype. So a lot of people would just go and uh, talk on the social networks about African wars, uh, word to mouth. And um, it was kind of like a social stretch goal in a way, but we didn't really give the parameters. So it was kind of like the, this joker a little bit, you know, kind of a, a stretch goal. And um, that worked pretty well because it got people's attention. So uh, something I recommend is just maybe to have a, a type of stretch goal that's maybe unique that's just and that doesn't really matter too much, uh, but that, that is uh, that keeps people that, that gets people's attention. And what did you give away as a as stretch goal? So what were the were the the gimmicks then that the people would actually get with their Kickstarter pledge then? So uh, most of the stretch goals, from what I can remember, uh, were cards because mm -hmm. it's uh, first and foremost a card game and. Uh, There's a lot of the cards that were unlocked that uh, will only be for this uh, this campaign. So uh, for collectors and for the secondary market, it's pretty cool, you know. And um, and this is cards that will be added to all the pledge levels uh, above. Uh, I mean, all the pledge levels are not the one euro pledge, you know. So everybody will be getting those cards. So even the people who uh, who pledged for like a, the, the 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 base game, you know, with the pre-built decks, will have some extra cards to, to be able to to deck build, you know. So that, that's pretty cool, and I think that's probably what people wanted. I mean, when when you're doing a card game, you want more cards. That's that's my opinion, anyways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So. Thank you so much for for being an awesome guest on this uh, on this podcast. Oh, I had a blast. That was my pleasure. It was really it was incredibly nice to talk to you and learn all of that insights from your design process and your Kickstarter campaign of uh, Arakan Wars. So um, great success on Kickstarter, and I'm pretty sure that you will be able to yeah to continue that that success with this game because it sounds awesome and um yeah it seems like you are having a, a great team to um yeah to work on it in the future absolutely really really thank you for having me on marvin i had a blast so um i know the kickstarter is over but uh where can people that are or might be interested in the game or um or you and your company. So where can people find you and maybe even buy the game? Okay, so um, you can always go on arakan.com slash Wars, or you just type in Arakan Wars in Google and, you, and you'll find it uh, straight away. Um, you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll get all the news or, or join one of the Facebook groups if you're French speaking or English speaking. That's probably the place to be because we interact uh, very often with the community and ask questions and the community asks questions as well. Um, we will be doing uh, our uh, late pledge uh, session um, on Baku Kit uh, in uh, August, uh, we haven't have we don't have the the, the the exact date, but it will be in August. And um, yeah, there we go. Okay, awesome. So I will add these links to the show notes as usual, so you can find them there as well. And um, yeah, until next week, keep shooting for the moon and nerd like a boss. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye, Robert. Cheers. Goodbye. Talk to you soon. Bye.